0: Thank you all. God bless you. Amen. We're so glad that you're here. If you'll turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. We are going to continue uh, in this wonderful gospel, this work of Matthew, telling us about Jesus and his ministry, telling us who he is. Um, Chapter 12 continues the theme that Matthew has here in chapters 11 and 12 about really how people respond to Christ in his ministry, his healings, his miraculous works, even his great teachings. There there people respond to the truth of Christ in basically two different ways. You are you either respond to what Jesus is doing and who Jesus is either with I mean amazement and awe, which then leads to repentance and salvation or you reply to Jesus and who He is with rejection. There is no in-between. There is no middle ground. And this is what chapters 11 and 12 of Matthew's gospel is showing us. And last week in Matthew chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, Matthew is showing us a division. He's revealing a division between these reactions to Jesus to the miracles that Jesus did. And, and in this case, Remember last week, a man who was demon-possessed was made whole. And his blindness and his inability to speak, all of that was restored by Christ. And the people pondered, there was two reactions. There was all the people, it says, they pondered the prophecy of the Messiah, this son of David. And they questioned, they thought, is this the son of David? Remember? But then there was also the reaction of the Pharisees, and they connected what Jesus was doing to the forces of Satan. And now neither of these reactions can be true at the same time. And that's what we're going to look at today. You cannot have both reactions to Jesus at the same time. One, he is the son of God, and he is the son of Satan. Both cannot be true. And that's what we're going to look at today. So now we come to the reaction of Jesus in response to these false accusations from the Pharisees. So let us read this passage together and learn from the wisdom of our Savior. So if you're able to stand, let's stand and read Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 25, okay? "'Knowing their thoughts, He, Jesus, said to them, "'Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, "'and no city or house divided against itself will stand.'" then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Words of our Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word you've allowed us to read. You've allowed us insight into a key aspect of who your Son is. All of his miraculous works... And all of his wonderful teaching points to one thing, and that is your kingdom. But God, I pray this morning that as we we listen closely to what your son, Jesus Christ, is doing as he interacts with these Pharisees, I pray, God, that you would open our minds, open our hearts to hear clearly from you. But I think also, Father, I'm... We fail so often, many times we may be more pharisaical in our thinking about Christ than we realize. And I pray, God, if that is the case, that through your word that you would soften the hearts of us who are blind to what we think. Let this time be for you, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a seat. Have a seat. We see here in verse 25... Matthew tells us that Jesus knows the thoughts of the Pharisees. Remember back up in verse 24, he says that, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast them out. In verse 25, Jesus knows what they're thinking. So clearly we we get indication that these Pharisees were not man enough to go to Jesus directly and accuse him. They were talking about him. Apparently, the accusations from the Pharisees were made beyond the earshot of Jesus. He may may not have heard this directly. That's what we see in verse 25. Yet, Yet we see here that Jesus is Lord even over blasphemous thoughts. That's something we need to stop and ponder here. What Matthew is showing us in Matthew, in chapters 11 and 12 is Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Mosaic Law. He's Lord over all things. He's Lord even over the spiritual world. And He's even Lord over those thoughts in our mind. I want to let that sink in for just a second. Some of us are going, Oh my. How many of us have had a thought even this morning? That had we spoken it out loud, there would have been repercussions from our Lord. Thoughts are not hidden from our Savior. Well, just here we see that this, this, this blasphemy against Christ, this, this, these accusations were beyond what Jesus could physically hear, yet He knew what was happening. He knows all things. He knows even the thoughts that are within our inner self. Although the Pharisees here were speaking to themselves, what I love about this text is Jesus is going to confront this head on. He's not going to allow it to remain silent. He's not going to allow it just to be swept under the rug. He's not going to allow the, the, the snippiness, the back talk in the crowds go unchallenged. While the Pharisees were speaking to Jesus behind his, or speaking about him behind his back, Jesus is going to be real bold here. The Pharisees would not confront Jesus directly, but Jesus is going to confront them directly with the absurdity of their charge against Him. He's going to show the absurdity here. The logical absurdity of their charge, I think, is very plain. When they say that that Jesus is... Casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons, Beelzebul, there seems to be a stark contradiction that Jesus is not going to let lay. Anything divided against itself will obviously self-destruct. I mean, that's just logic. It, it, things cannot be in tension against one another And it will stand for very long, whether it be a marriage, whether it be a friendship, whether it be a relationship, whether it be an organization, whatever, a government, whatever we we see throughout human history, the human condition is if something is contradictory within itself, it doesn't take long before it collapses. And the logical breakdown of the charges here by the Pharisees, I think, leads to an outcome that cannot stand. I mean, look, look here at verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. There's the truth. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. This is a truth that has been true from the very beginning of whenever truth was there. Can't, ha- I mean, you, you can't go away from this. I mean, this is logic 101. Uh, there is this, this idea of the law of non-contradiction. If you've ever studied logic or heard logic, and here's basically what it says. Something cannot be both true and untrue at the same time in the same context. Whether you studied logic or not, it's, it's the reality of God's created order. It's how God made it. And what Jesus does here, he shows the contradiction in the charges to the point that he reduces their charge to an absurdity, which is another form of argument. Jesus was a master of thinking. He was a master of arguing with folks. He was the master of revealing the truth to whoever he was was talking to. He He always revealed the truth to the sinner. He always reveals the truth to those who accuse him. And he does so powerfully. And so what we see here is that when we look here in verse 25, Jesus is showing what, what is reality. It, 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 not only does this apply in the real world, every kingdom divided itself is laid to waste, no city or house divided can stand. That's a reality of our, our physical world. It's also the reality of the supernatural. As Jesus is is being shown here in chapter 12 as being Lord over the supernatural, the same reality applies in both the seen and the unseen aspects of God's creation. Nothing divided against itself can stand for very long. So look here in verse 26. Now Jesus continues speaking. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Same idea of moving forward, not just from the physical cities and houses, but also to the spiritual realm. How can Satan cast out Satan and it be a legitimate casting out of demons? You just follow, you just think about this a little bit. it's, It's absurd. That's what Jesus is showing. He's reducing this charge to absurdity. And he's, and, and in so doing, he's showing how ludicrous the Pharisees are, but also he's showing how authoritative he is. Look here, the charge by the Pharisees is that Satan is casting out a demon from this poor man that Jesus healed back in verse 22. A demon-depressed man who was blind and mute, Jesus healed him so that he spoke and saw. And, and not, you could imply from there that he's casting out demons because clearly, The Pharisees saw that in verse 24. He's casting out demons. If this were the case that Satan was casting out Satan or Satan casting out demons, then Satan is dividing himself. Why would Satan work through Jesus to cast out one of his own servants of hell? That's what the demons are. They're servants of hell. Why would Satan use Jesus to cast out one of his own demons? Why would Satan want to cast one of his own demons out of someone that the demon was possessing? I mean, just ponder that. It makes no sense. Why would Satan do this? Why would a prince of demons cast away another demon if the goal was for the demonic world to control all of God's creation? Here is a step where you've succeeded. You've possessed someone. Why would you undo that? Is anybody guilty of undoing something that you did right the first time, but then you went back a second time and undid it, and then you said, oh, my goodness. And you just shake your head and think, why did I do that? Like if you're taking an exam of any kind, I mean, that's the number one problem with most test-taking people. When they're taking a test, they will overthink it and change their answer when they had the right answer the first time. I've been guilty of that because we overthink it. and That's what the Pharisees are doing here. Imagine if you were the head of an organization. Think about it. If you're the head of an organization, whatever it is, if it's a natural organization, a church, a business, a club, whatever, Jesus, think about it. You're going to be the head of it. There, there is a head of all organizations. We saw this even last week. If Satan, if Beelzebub is the head of the demons, if Satan is the prince of demons, that's a head of a spiritual part of the unseen world, Jesus himself is the head of the church and his kingdom. If Jesus is the head, even over the supernatural kingdom of heaven, Satan himself is head over the supernatural forces of evil, at least for now. Well, That's a good clarifier. Satan, at this point, is head over the supernatural forces of evil, for now. But ultimately, we even saw last week, Jesus is even head even over that. That's what we see as he's casting out demons. So what sense does it make for the head of the forces of evil to go against one of his own? What benefit does this action serve? It's obvious that if Satan is casting out demons, members of his own kingdom, would his evil kingdom not eventually fall in on itself? Of course it would. That's what Jesus is saying here. So when we look at verse 27... And now he's shifting the focus away from Satan and his the absurdity of him dividing himself to verse 27. Now Jesus is going to be focused on him because the charges are against him. Now verse 27. Let's read verse 27 and 28 together. Jesus says this, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What's happening here in these two verses? Jesus is continuing this line of argument, showing the absurdity of division. Let's break this down a little bit. He's brilliant. Jesus is brilliant here. He turns the accusation back against the Pharisees. He says, and if I cast out demons by the eligible, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now what's Jesus doing here? He's talking to the Pharisees. This verse indicates that some of the followers of the Pharisees practiced exorcism themselves. That's what's implied here. The sons of the Pharisees implies students or followers within that tradition. Okay? So the Jewish historian Josephus actually helps us see that. Josephus, their historian, records that some of the followers of the Pharisees cast out demons, but their methods involved cult-like formula, incantations, performance rituals. Jesus, in contrast, when he cast out demons, he did so with a mere word. We saw that in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, where Matthew says that he cast out spirits, with a word, just a word. Yet these sons of the Pharisees who dabbled in the mystic arts, how did they cast out demons? The way the pagans did, doing rituals and dances and incantations and foolish, extravagant things. I mean, we can see biblical evidence of this as well, of the followers of the Pharisees, if you look at the book of Acts chapter 19, this is Luke's account of the early church. If we look in the book of Acts chapter 19, we see evidence here of, of some of these sons of the Pharisees doing this. Do you remember the story of the sons of Sceva? So we're talking about. Verse 11 in Matthew chapter 19. I want to pause. I hear pages turning. Thank you. Acts chapter 19. Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, notice that some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. So apparently some of the Jewish people who practiced exorcism thought, Hey, Paul's being very successful. Let's try his method. And they said, I proclaim the name of Jesus. What happened here? Verse 14... The seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So right there in verse 14 of Acts 19, we see the idea of the sons of a Jewish high priest implying students, teachers. Verse 15. But the here, here's the beautiful thing about how God works. Anyone who is false, who claims the name of Christ incorrectly, is going to end up in a mess. You see what happens? Look here in verse 15. When these sons of Sceva tried to use the name of Christ, when they're not in Christ, here's what happens. Verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Remember that? And verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. What happened here? When this demon in this man, they mocked these sons of the Pharisees. Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? This evil spirit overpowered these seven sons of Sceva. You could, here's how we say it in the South. They got a whooping. Amen? That's what happened. So what we see back in Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus in verse 27 is looking at the Pharisees and says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? That's what he's referring to. The, the followers of the Pharisees who wanted to dabble in the mystical arts and exorcism. Incorrectly. So there's plenty of biblical evidence here that the religious establishment of, of the Pharisees and the Jewish culture, they had become slightly corrupt by the black arts. Does that happen in the church now? Can I tell you what the latest one is? It's been around for a couple of years. Um, it's called, and I, I don't have it in my notes, so I'm going off side. Track. The pen, what's it called? The enograms. Enograms. How was that? Enneagram—that's how you pronounce. Yeah, yeah. Can I just be real? Can I caution y'all, folks? Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. I don't care if it's if it's—I don't care if the enneagram is actually uh, put together as a pro- as a personality test. Look at how it's done. Look at the graphics that they use. It's as about as much of the evil uh, evil forces as anything I've seen recently. Because it masquerades. It, it's if you look back at the history of where all this starts, it's, it has nothing to do with the gospel. That wasn't in my notes. That was just a plus. Okay. Um, okay. Because here's the problem: when we are looking at spiritual things, Satan is not always obvious. He's not always obvious. He is about as conniving and, and cunning as any creature that God has ever made according to the first book of Genesis or second book of Genesis or second chapter of Genesis, I'm trying to say. It, it, it's, it's, it's what's happening here. There, there are apparently even amongst the Pharisees themselves, there were students who were practicing this kind of stuff. And Jesus is pointing out the hypocrisy in their charge against him. When he says here, in verse 27, if I cast out demons by Abel's well, by whom do your sons cast them out? If they want to accuse Jesus of, of, of being a prince of demons, casting out demons, then how much more so are the sons of Sceva and the sons of the Pharisees doing worse? It's going to fall in on itself. When we see here that Jesus is revealing, what he's doing here, he's revealing the hypocrisy and the prejudice of these Pharisees against him. Their methods of that they were, these exorcists who practiced under the Pharisaical tradition, their methods mimicked demonic pagan religions. Had absolutely nothing to do with God. And the irony is at work here, pagan rites practicing within Jewish students And so so these, these pagan rituals accusing Jesus of being a pagan is a division that is not true and will not stand. That's what Jesus is saying. If satanic forces can corrupt the priesthood of God's people, then the division of hypocrisy here is going to show itself by a collapse. Their own hypocrisy would eventually reveal itself, and Jesus is pointing out the truth here. Jesus speaks truth to these hypocrites. He's showing, he's showing their hypocrisy. He's showing their arrogance. Now, when we drop down to verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In verse 27, he's saying that if your sons, your students are practicing these pagan rituals, They're going to be judged, but if it, but me, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come. Because here's what Jesus is showing. He's saying that if your charge is correct, then, then the devil will show himself. But if I'm correct, the kingdom of heaven will reveal itself. Now what's going to mask, what's going to overcome here? Clearly the kingdom of heaven. If the Spirit of God casts out demons, that's a good thing. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Another factor at play in this false accusation from the Pharisees involves the view of the Holy Spirit. Let's figure out what he's saying here. Because the Pharisees had an idea about the Holy Spirit that kind of got them in trouble. The Pharisees were known for their emphasis upon the law and the prophets. Do you all remember that? I mean, that's what they held as the standard, the law and the prophets. If they said it, we do it. And you better too. That was the Pharisees. Judaism saw the Holy Spirit, especially the Pharisees, they saw the Holy Spirit as the spirit of prophecy that gave the prophets of the Old Testament the Word of God. Rightly so. Right. How did the prophets of old speak the word of God apart from the Holy Spirit imparting those words through them? Correct. And so if this is correct, the prophets were men of God who spoke for him. And the Holy Spirit acted as this organ of communication, the voice box, if you will, between God and this prophet. There had to be that conduit. A common phrase that we see in the Old Testament that describes the Old, the Holy Spirit is quote unquote the Spirit of prophecy. You see that term, the Spirit of prophecy, often in the Old Testament that is clearly connected to the Holy Spirit that Jesus is speaking about here. Same, same idea. The Spirit of prophecy gave divine revelation and wisdom to the Old Testament patriarchs and prophets and teachers. So it was widely agreed amongst the Pharisees that the spirit of prophecy withdrew from Israel after the final prophets were on the scene, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. It was understood that at the end of the age of prophecy, the spirit of prophecy or the Holy Spirit withdrew. That's why there was silence from God for 400 years before Jesus and John the Baptist came on the scene. Okay, That's the history here. So the Pharisees, here's how they were thinking about the Holy Spirit. A common idea amongst these these Pharisees was that the spirit of prophecy could not be the same power uh, involved within creation through miracles because the spirit of prophecy was only for prophecy and the Holy Spirit could not be involved in the created order because the creation was so evil. That's what the Pharisees were thinking. Now, as I say that, how many of us, without realizing it, may think the same thing? Let that sink in for a minute. It was difficult for these Pharisees to see miracles as something from God because the spirit of prophecy had departed. They did not see that the Holy Spirit had anything to do with the physical created world. It was hard for them to make that connection. So it was difficult for these Jews to, to picture the spirit of prophecy as involved in miracles, as involved in the creation. The spirit of prophecy, the spirit of God, was only active through revelation and prophecy in the Holy Scriptures. That was it. That's it. So we have to remember that the Spirit of God never left the creation that He was part of making. We look back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. We read, The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was there at the beginning of creation. Genesis 1, verse 2. We also read in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 32, verse 15, The Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. Does that not sound like the Spirit of God involved in creation? That's just two examples of more that I could probably take the rest of the afternoon pointing out. But we're good Baptists. We have to go eat dinner at 12 o'clock. Pastor has to be done. Thank you for laughing at my joke back there. Appreciate that. What's that? <laughs> I don't get that same appreciation other places. So what, what is Jesus showing us here? He's casting out demons. Jesus, he's showing that he's Lord over the spiritual world, but he's also Lord over the physical world. He's, he's Lord over all of creation. Spiritual and physical. Right? But we also see that these demonic forces, here's how we have to think about this, because the Christian understanding of the gospel, the Christian understanding of the creation is much different than what the Pharisees were saying. We see that in the Christian way of thinking that demonic forces are invaders of the created world. They're invaders. Uh, one, one scholar I read calls them Parasites. That's a great way to describe the demonic world. They're parasites in God's created order. What do you do with a parasite? You figure out how to flush it out, don't you? Doesn't belong there. So Jesus, we have to look here, that... When we, we saw that the Holy Spirit was part of the creation in the beginning. Likewise, we see in scripture that Jesus was a part of creation in the beginning. We see this in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. We won't read that. But we also see this if you want to flip over to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. The Apostle Paul speaks about this. First Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Amen? So not only is the Holy Spirit active in the created order, so is Jesus. The Son of God was there in the beginning. He didn't come along after the fact. So why is this important? We must not forget that all of the created order is under the control of God the Father. It's also under the control of Jesus Christ the Son, and it's also under the control of the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, the Spirit, and Jesus the Son are all involved in the creation of the world and the continuing operation of it. Our world continues to operate by the graces and the power of our Father God and our Savior Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. You're not breathing at this moment apart from God's power. I want you to ponder that for a minute. So, if that's the case, if God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus the Son are all involved in the creation of the world, then what's happening here as Jesus is loving those who are sick and and, and in need of healing and those who are demon-possessed and oppressed, Jesus is involved here, God the Father is involved here, and the Holy Spirit is involved here all at the same time. So when the Pharisees condemned Jesus for casting out demons by the power of Satan, they blasphemed not only Jesus himself, they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And they blasphemed God the Father. We're going to get into that next week. We're not going to touch that today because next week, boy, hold on. We're going to see what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit looks like as Jesus teaches these Pharisees. Y'all, that's my plug for next week, so you gotta come back now. You know, I'm noticing that's, that's the secret when you're watching TV shows and you're reading books and these little, there's always a little nugget to keep you going, isn't it? So, there you go. Next week, come back. There's more to come, okay? Verse 28 reminds us when we see this in Matthew 12, verse 28, he says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This verse reminds us that it is by the Spirit of God that Jesus is casting out demons with a word. It's a sign that the kingdom of God is at work. So to condemn Jesus is to condemn the Spirit. That's blasphemy. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. When we read in Isaiah chapter 11, if you're taking notes, Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 says this, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And that was a prophecy of the son of David to come. And if you remember one of the responses from the people as Jesus was, was healing this demon-possessed man back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 23, the response from, quote, all the people was, can this be the son of David? They were pondering the prophecies of old. They saw the spirit at work within Jesus. Is it possible that this is the one that Isaiah said would come? Amen? Amen. So all of Jesus' works were done by the Spirit of God. Everything Jesus did, every word that he spoke, every miracle he performed, every casting out of demons that he did was under and through and by the Spirit of God. There is no separation. Jesus did it, so did the Spirit. And so as as these men are condemning Jesus and accusing Him of being in alignment with evil spirits, what are they doing? They're they're blaspheming. They're speaking against God Himself, really. So if all of Jesus' works were done by the Spirit, His miracles were of God and His miracles were of the Spirit, and that is evidence from Isaiah 11 that Jesus was the prophesied Son of David to come. Now, when we look here at verse 29, he says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's showing them what's happening. And and then he continues, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. What's Jesus saying here? Verse 29, who remember what I said about demons and satanic forces in God's created order? What are they? They're parasites. They're unwanted visitors. What's Jesus saying here in verse 29? Entering a strong man's house is not wise unless you have more power than the strong man. If you want to go invade somebody's house, you better be able to win. And what has happened here in the spiritual world is that satanic forces, evil forces have invaded God's perfect created order. And Jesus is entering the house, so to speak. And I am stronger than them. And I am confident that I am stronger than them. And I will bind them for God's purposes. You see that? Jesus, he's closing his comparisons of the Pharisees' accusations about satanic control. And he's showing it with the creative world. Jesus is the one who enters Actually, Jesus entered the strong man's house to overthrow his control because right now Satan is the strong man who possesses God's created order by our choice. And Jesus says, I'm here to bind the strong man and cast him out. That's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that we read about in the scriptures, is not, Jesus is my best friend, I have a lifetime friendship with him. Yes, we do, yet at the heart of this is Jesus is the Son of God who is tasked with coming into the created order, taking all evil powers that are running this place and throwing them out because who is the Lord of the world? The Lord of all created things is who? Jesus himself, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Satan doesn't belong here. Evil doesn't belong here. Sin doesn't belong here. That's why whenever, if you are, if you have a conscience, if, if the Holy Spirit is prodding your conscience through your sin, that's a good thing to reveal to you that something is not right. Sin doesn't belong. And Jesus is telling these Pharisees, I'm the one who's going to come here and take the take the man who has controlled God's created order, the created thing, Satan, not, not a man, but the created thing, I'm going to cast him out. That's my job. But see, the Pharisees, they were blind to what Jesus was doing. They could not see that Jesus was opposing Satan. That's a problem. All the people, in verse 23... Who witnessed this, they saw what was happening. Or at least they began to see what was happening. But the Pharisees were blind to it. They could not see that Jesus was opposed to Satan. If they did, they would not have accused him of being a prince of demons. And so all of the healing of the sick and the diseased, that was a sign to show that, to overturn that what sin had brought into the world. Satan himself promotes disease and death. Okay? Our sin ushers it in, and Satan and his demons, they, they, they can kind of manipulate disease and death for their issues. Jesus overcomes these things, and Jesus is casting out the demons as an obvious opposition to the devil. Obvious. But, but who but God and his son could enter into the very house of Satan? and successfully throw him out. Nobody. Only they could do it. Humanity, we are the possession of Satan by our choice. We we give the devil authority over this world, and we give the devil authority over our lives, consciously or subconsciously. And Jesus is showing us the truth here. And the Pharisees missed it. The Pharisees are missing that we belong to Satan by our willing adherence to sin and our disobedience to our Father in heaven. And Jesus comes to bind Satan, to take back what is rightfully his. And that is all of creation itself. And that is all of humanity. You and me, we are God's creation. We are made in his image. And Jesus is here saying, demon, you have no place here, especially in a beloved creature made in my Father's image. You see that? When we look here in verse 30, he says, "Or, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We're going to close with this. Jesus, he's ending this rebuttal with a very true statement. Okay? There's no neutral ground between Jesus and relationship with Him. Either you believe Jesus, you believe that His works are of the Father in heaven, by the Holy Spirit, that the Son is the promised Messiah, or you don't. Period. Anyone who believes that Jesus is anything else, in this case, a tool of Satan, that person is an enemy of God. Period. Okay? One who does not have any inclination that they're doing it. It, it, One does not have to be actively opposed to the work of Christ to be an enemy. In other words, you don't have to be active in, don't listen to Jesus. Jesus is bad. You don't have to go that far to be an enemy of God. Notice that in verse 30. Here's what Jesus says. Whoever does not gather with me. That's all he says. He doesn't say, okay, if you organize against me, then you're against me. But if you're naive to what I'm doing, then you're okay. No. Whoever does not gather with me is against me. What does he mean by that? To be an enemy of Christ is to merely be non-active with him. Not to be active with Jesus Christ and his kingdom. You could be very passive and be an enemy of Christ. See what the, our Lord is saying? I'm going to let that sink in for a second. How many of us have been guilty of that? Just being passive, not gathering with Him, makes us an enemy. We merely need to be complacent, a non-believer in Christ, to be an enemy. You don't believe who Jesus is. You don't believe what he's doing. You're his enemy. Period. That's what he says. So if you're not gathering with Jesus, he says you're scattering. If you're not actively walking with Jesus, you don't belong with him. So he's saying this against the Pharisees. You want to oppose what I'm doing? Matter of fact, you want to blatantly speak against what I'm doing? You're not gathering with me. You're scattering. It's a problem. So what is Jesus saying here? Just as the kingdom of God cannot be divided, this is what He's teaching the Pharisees here in this rebuttal. Here's what He's saying to us. Just as the kingdom of God cannot be divided, neither can the Spirit of God be divided from the Son. It's all intertwined. What the Son of God does, the Spirit does. Nothing that Jesus does is accomplished apart from the Holy Spirit. Nothing. Nothing. To speak against Jesus is to speak against the Spirit. And this is blasphemy. And the verses that follow are going to take into account the sins against Jesus and the sins against the Holy Spirit. And they will not be forgivable. The warning of the Pharisees into us, I think, goes deeper with those sins that are forgivable and the one, one sin that will never be forgiven. And that's next week. Now, I don't want you to lose sleep between now and then, but I do ask that the Holy Spirit, med- he, that the Holy Spirit would cause you to ponder this week, not to fear that you've committed the unforgivable blasphemous sin, but more so, do I even know who the Holy Spirit is? That's what I want us to look at next week. Okay? And I'll just give you a precursor. It ain't the 20th century Pentecostal charismatic movement definition of the Holy Spirit either. Okay? So here's what I want to ask. Are you in the same spirit with Jesus? Are you gathering souls with Him as He takes back the fallen creation that Satan is controlling? Are you complacent? Are you uninvolved or worse? Are you actively opposing Christ? I'm going to let you ponder that over the next seven days. Fair enough? Let's pray. Father God, you've shown us wisdom here in this interaction between Jesus and his opponents. Dear God, there, there were those who were actively opposed to Christ. They were accusing Jesus of being involved with the prince of demons yet they themselves were in alignment with the devil himself. And so God, I pray that you would cause us who are listening to these words of yours, ask, I ask, Lord, that your spirit, your Holy Spirit, would speak loudly in our souls this week. Where do we align with your Son, Jesus Christ? I mean, we may even be blind to our passive, aggressive thinking. When we may not even realize that we're not gathering with your son. And so God, I pray that you would use this passage here of Matthew's gospel to speak to us all. That your Holy Spirit would reveal within each and every one of us the truth of who Jesus is not someone of our own imagining, but who exactly Jesus is and our dependence upon him for salvation. Lord, this is your time as we close our worship. This is your time as we depart from here. Work amongst us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with one more hymn. Is that right? Doxology and... Hymn number 440. I love the... Y'all like the doxology? I love the doxology. Amen. Thank you for choosing that. God bless you. If you'll stand, let's sing together. Amen.